call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 99 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Donica Tiernan watch two films from acclaimed writer-director Paul Schrader, 1980's American Gigolo and 1985's Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out justwatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call a Friend of Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. Oh, we're live. That's right. <laughs> we are we're live. live. Hey, Luke McGinsky. I'm glad you're listening. I love <laughs> you and respect you. Uh, and I'll hopefully see you this weekend. When will this come out? Next Maybe weekend. tomorrow. Hey, it doesn't yeah, take yeah. a week to... Uh, to chop up an episode yeah luke see you i'll be opening for john spillan i haven't done comedy in ages it's going to be a hoot well that feels very inside uh inside baseball, That's inside I, baseball I, I don't yes. understand i don't know what you're talking about i'm here well, to talk about films and stuff so i have no idea well, about any of who these people are except for john spillan enemy of the well let me remind you you broke your confidentiality agreement with luke M- mcginsky and Did I know? is his is it mazinski or mcginsky well, I, I, guess I, just, I always just call him Luke. Never know. Um, you broke your confidentiality agreement and told me that uh, he's a fan of the show. Yeah, number one so, fan. He said he's got a tattoo and everything. Oh hell yeah! So you're out in uh, bandit country. Are you gonna play a British secret agent at poker? Yes, absolutely. That's right. I'm in the country where they filmed Casino Royale. Correct. Did they yes. Not? I'm in Montenegro. Actually, I don't think they filmed it here. I think it was set in Montenegro, it's set but here. they filmed it's it in, like, Hungary or somewhere. Perhaps. Who knows? All the I inter- know is, knows. when I think about where you are right now, I just think about Eva Green. I get all warm. Well, she is here. What, right there with you? No. That would be gauche. She's, uh, yeah. <laughs> she's outside. What's gauche? Is that a word that the kids are using? Yeah. <laughs> the kids are all over that. That's absolutely... <laughs> what does it mean? What does gauche mean? I'm, ge- I'm deadly serious. I don't know what you mean. Gauche, unsophisticated and socially awkward. Ah, like me sometimes. Mid-18th century French, literally left. Behaving in a way that is offensive to other people. I've definitely been that, yeah. Awkward and, unco- awkward and uncomfortable with other people, especially because young and without experience. Yeah, yeah, sounds... Yeah. I have been gauche. I don't think I'm gauche anymore very often. I don't know. I think my ghost days are go- are numbered. I'd say you're more Dwat. Dwat. What's that? Like right, you know, right wing. Oh, you're, right. I don't Do you think, think you're I left am? anymore. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm just somewhere in, in the middle. I don't think I am uh, right wing. I thought I was there for a few years, but I suddenly realized that, I don't know, I, just, I, I, I basically, I'm just enjoying the whole thing now from a distance because I like it when people care excessively about things. Like, for example, if somebody's like, um, call me this, because I'm this, uh, that's funny. And then if some guy goes, no, I'm not going to call you that, that's funny. And if somebody goes, yes, I am, that's also funny. So it's just a win-win-win. <laughs> You're just entertained it's like, by everything, then. Kind of. It's, it's, it's not good for the future of society, because... The only thing that's not funny to me is if somebody goes, can you kind of call me them? And then somebody goes, yeah, sure. That's not funny. Um, but it is for, it's good progress, you know what I mean? Yeah, but because I, people I, are happy. 
<laughs> I prefer I prefer people to get annoyed about stuff that doesn't affect them at all. That's my buzz. That's uh, what I like a lot. Well, you're very my- much the Yukio Mishima uh, of the modern age. And also, you're very much the Philip Glass of the modern age. I was doing my best Philip Glass yeah, impression so I heard. there. Yeah, that was very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew the I knew the the song that you were doing. I mean, I could see that. I listened to this score before I knew who Mishima was, and then later found out about the film. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's but been a whole round trip. But first of all, Mishima, yes. Which the one that we really want to talk about, I'm I'm guessing <laughs> we're gonna have to bash through uh, American Gigolo a little. Not not a bad film at all, in my opinion. No, 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 no. That like I mean, first of all, let's I don't know. Let's talk about Paul Schrader a little. I'd say so. Like everybody except Hal Ashby, who appeared in Peter Biskind's, um Easy Riders, gossip, gossipy Bulls. history of seventy Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, Easy Riders, Rising Bulls. Uh, Paul Schrader gets a bit of a kicking, um, but I've always found his story amongst the most compelling of the lot of them. He seems to not be not be able to help but make personal films most of the time, and uh, that certainly seems to be the case with this week's two films. Um, for those out there who don't know, Paul Schrader, who shot to fame, first of all, uh, wrote Yakuza with his brother Leonard, which there was a huge bidding war over it. They made a lot of money. Not a very good film, in my opinion. I don't think I've but seen then, it. It was directed by Sidney Pollock, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's not great. Uh, Robert Mitchum is a, a owl fellow who goes back to Japan. He had a life in crime there years ago. It, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm not a fan. But I'm just generally interested in Paul Schrader. Uh, he is mo- probably most famous still, I would say, for having written Taxi Driver. But essentially, like, it's his earlier life, I think, that makes him an interesting filmmaker. So he grew up in a strictly Calvinist household mm-hmm. and didn't see a film until he was 17. And he credits this with his highly intellectual approach to filmmaking. I like intellectual and pretentious stuff, so I'd eventually like to watch everything he's done, I think. Um, I... I, I've never found one of his films uninteresting. Some I didn't like that I've seen. Um, I I find them generally very interesting as a rule. I like both of this week's films, one a lot more than the other, it's fair to say, yeah, and I reckon same, you're in the same, same boat. Same. Yeah, no no question. I mean, thinking about his filmography, it's kind of weird because like he's done some great stuff, but he's always, like I've always put him in a, he's not in that upper echelon. He's not in that top category for me just because like, there was, there's been rough, rough periods where he's produced absolute shite. Like, he did The Canyons, uh, written by Bryce Dinellis. Stuff he was doing just around that time, just before he made First Reformed, he was doing some, like, very, very poor, low-budget stuff. I haven't seen yeah. them. I'm just going on, like... Uh, he did a couple of, of uh, Nick Cagers that are supposed to be very right. bad. Yeah, Dying of the Light, I think, is one of them. But then, I mean, like, going back to the start of his career, after Taxi Driver, you've got, he wrote Obsession, he wrote Rolling Thunder, he directed Blue Collar, Hardcore, American Gigolo, he wrote Raging Bull, Cat People, not a fan, I thought that was a bit crap. But then, Mishima, he wrote The Mosquito Coast, which we watched for the the podcast. We watched, yeah, enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, he's got some excellent films in there, but... Uh, it started. I, I'm. I'm. I mean, I'm kind of amazed because with when he uh, made first reformed in 2017, that's really been a big. Uh, yeah, it's been very productive him. since then. Yeah, 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 yeah. The car counter, master gardener, which is coming out 
shortly. With Joel Edgerton and Sigourney Weaver, what a cast, huh? Yeah. I suppose he's just an, a respected screenwriter, he which is a, like... He has like a weird origin story as well, though, because like you said, he's like raised in a strict Calvinist family. He was going to go to the seminary, and then a friend of his introduced him to uh, Pauline Kael... And I think he's, he got smashed with her and stayed over at her place. And she said to him, like, you don't want to become a minister. You should be a film critic. Isn't that oh, like yeah. a wild thing to say? Like, a film critic tells you, like, hey, you don't want to do this. You want to do the job that I'm doing. <laughs> Is it, I just think that's, like, such a, like, imagine <laughs> whatever your job is. You're like, hey. You don't want to do that. You want to be a checkout operator at Tesco because that's what well, I, I do. Being a film critic certainly had more currency back then. Um, and I'm not even just talking about Pauline Kael. It's like the medium was exploding at the time they would have, because I've heard that story. And the medium would was just like it was going all sorts of crazy places. Um, you know, the 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 kid gloves had literally been taken off and film critics... Like Pauline Kael's style in particular, I don't think anybody really got tried honestly mm. to emulate it. it. Was basically like writing an essay whenever she felt like it about something that, and then some of her reviews would just be one paragraph long. It was literally freewheeling, whatever she wanted. She was not yeah, yeah. Well, she literally was. Um, yeah, that like the best criticism I, I find is like that. And there was a huge tradition of that sort of intellectual shite going on over in France as well. So they were like that. That's probably where she would have seen Paul Schrader because, like he has said, you and I would have very emotional memories of films from a young age, right? But sure, he he doesn't have any of that. Yeah, yeah. He ju- he saw his first film and it was some ridiculous thing. Yeah, I know. Uh, it was at the age the, of seventeen. Um, it was the absent-minded professor, which is uh, that's it. Yeah. It's a 1961 sci-fi comedy starring Fred McMurray, uh, a film which was later remade in 1997 as the Robin Williams masterpiece Flubber. What? Yeah. He went to see the uh, the first version of Flubber, and he was oh, like, wow. that's it. That's films. <laughs> uh, the one thing, that was the one thing about these, the films that we watched this week. It was uh, Super little, serious. Well, yeah, it was a little off-putting that there was no sort of rubber type bouncing element that could help I did. people bounce off of the walls and stuff. Yeah. No, I did think that I think like, that would I mean, have really improved both films. Especially in that goofy sex scene in American Gigolo. Which one? Hey, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Because mm. there's a few goofy sex scenes, maybe. I think of there's only one that I that I have in my mind. I was thinking before about Schrader because I was sure that I'd read a book about him. I found that like I'd actually read one of the book. I read one of the books that he wrote, Transcendental Style and Film. Oh, you've told me about that. You told me it's a good book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's about Ozu Brisson and uh, Dreyer. Because I remember, yeah, maybe I mentioned it when we were doing our Robert Brisson. We watched Pickpocket. Yeah, like that was his serious Pauline Kael inspired. Like I'm a film critic. But two and years was, after did, he made did he that make book that... was when he did right. uh, his first film, Yakuza. The Yakuza. And yeah, yeah, that's what that was going to be my question. Uh, like, and like, he had a rough old time of it in Hollywood, much like basically Richard Gere in Gigolo was a cipher for him, I feel. But like, yeah, basically just got ate up by the town in a Brett Easton Ellis sort of fashion, addicted to cocaine until, coke, yeah. yeah, yeah, he just had to get it. Like, he basically, I think he moved to um, Japan for yeah. a few years and uh, detoxed and. 
he's uh, been a much much more balanced individual since then. But like I read, uh, like I re- I first read Easy Rider Raging Bulls years ago, and I re- reread yeah, it a, a few a few years back, and um, you kind of do realize because I have read responses from a number of filmmakers and other journalists, and actually I think. If I'm, I think Peter Bizkind even himself admitted to something like this. Like it's very gossipy, so yeah. like nobody comes out of it looking looking well, and except Hal Ashby because Hal Ashby died. But like Paul Schrader, I think you know they say like he carried a gun with him everywhere and all of this mad shit. But like maybe he did. But it's just a it's a very gossipy book for that kind of crack. I found. Well, there was that was. It- was that scene cut out of Taxi Driver, the one where the guy's in the back seat of the car and he's like, "This is a magnum. Have you ever seen what this could? Imagine what this could do to a woman's pussy." No, that's uh, that, that is in the film. I couldn't remember if I that think was. That like, is, I think that is. I think that is in the film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, I always felt that was very shadery. Legend has it he wrote that film while living in his car, while playing but with his. I'm, I don't really buy that just because. Um, he had already sold a bunch of movies at that point. It doesn't make any sense that that would be true. What but did anyway, you uh, What did you make of his top ten films? I'm assuming you saw that from his sign sound thing. Yeah, I did. I can't remember what they are now off the top of my head, but I remember they Citizen all look pretty Kane, good to me. The Conformist, yeah, great. great. In the mood for love, great. I think I put that out for a toss at some point, and it got it lost. Uh, the Lady Eve, great. Orpheus, don't know. Pickpocket, which we've watched for the podcast. The okay. Rules of the Game. Great. Tokyo Story, the Ozu film, which I think... That's coming up for a toss at some point. I'm sure it is. I believe so. Vertigo. Great. Which I mentioned very recently. And a little uh, little 1969 joint called The Wild Bunch. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty solid top 10. Have you seen seen Michael Mann's top 10? No. What's in that? Uh, Avatar. Just said I'd mention that. That's the only thing I remember from it. But I was like, yeah, fuck you, Andy. Fucking Michael Mann likes Avatar. To be fair, Michael Mann has, I think he's got some sort of uh, brain problem. You've said that before now, to be fair. No, I I mean, no, he has something wrong with him, right? I don't know what it is, but Michael Mann has, like, listen, I'm not speaking out of school here. I haven't accessed his medical records, but Michael Mann's brain is not functioning. And the moment he put Avatar in his top 10, that's when the doctor should have swooped in. All right, okay. You shouldn't be allowed to operate. No, listen, the guy shouldn't be allowed to operate heavy machinery. (laughs) He said Avatar. Well, he doesn't operate it. He directs other people. Orpheus, wherever the fuck that is. He should have put that in his top 10. Why did he put Avatar? You don't know what Orpheus is. Yeah, I do. It's a French film directed by Jean Cocteau and starring Jean Cocteau. You do know what it is. Yeah, because I'm you're not reading. reading that off a screen right now. <laughs> no, you're right. I've committed this all to memory from all those times that I watched Orpheus. What about Morpheus? That would be better. What about Morbius? Okay. Anyway, American. Gigolo. Anyway, yeah. Did you uh, had you seen this before? I had not. The biggest surprise, well, number one biggest surprise, was to find out that the song "Call Me" was written for this. Written oh, and rewritten you? over many cor- over the course of the film several times in different iterations. Hmm. Where Giorgio Morador and uh, Blondie work together to create this song. It's solid and it works quite well over the opening credits. Yes, I felt terribly clever when I decided uh, Paul Schrader was basically making pickpocket. But uh, afterwards, I read uh, that apparently everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's clearly he's doing pickpocket. Uh, but then I, like, I read 
like two or three reviews of the movie and they're like oh yes he's basically doing pickpocket it's like all right fine guys way to rub it in i enjoyed the film a lot go on his version is dick pocket dick socket i don't know dick socket something like that dick socket are you gonna edit that out no i'm gonna edit it in (laughs) <laughs> it's, just gonna, it's gonna be like a wall of sound of just me yeah, saying yeah, li- throughout the whole <laughs> thing <laughs> um yeah i enjoyed the film a lot um it feels like it's set in kind of the brett easton ellis la so it's like Does it sleazy, not? I, w- I was thinking exactly the, exactly the same thing i was thinking like it's not a surprise to me that he ended up making a film with brett easton ellis because yeah this feels like so vacuous patrick bateman world uh, even though it's LA rather than New York, yeah, I guess aspirationally um, numb. Like mm. everybody's enjoying the fact that they're numb, and the film's big strength is in the tension between how Julian sees himself and the world he inhabits, and how that world actually is. Like I think Richard Gere is so good in this. He's so good that the story works, despite no other characters, with the exception of the investigator, having anything to them, Detective really. Joe Sunday. Yeah, he's good, but everything, everybody else is literally like one of those blank-faced Brett Easton Ellis characters. Um, and I like Brett, Brett Easton Ellis' books, by the way, but he has a certain yeah, style. Of, you know what I'm talking about. I do. Um, like Julian, dis- like, despite the world he's in, he's like he's trying to cover it up, but you can just see... He's like desperate and lonely and sad, um, but he claims to find meaning in his life and work. And like, he even seems to believe it himself, actually, um, which is, I don't know, th- that's the real thing that makes the film work, I think, is gear is so good and the world is so cold and you ju- like you, you kind of feel bad for him. He's like a puppy dog with a, you know, hot bod. As the film progresses, we see him uh, hit hard times, and surprise, surprise, he has no one in his corner. He's like a better-looking, more optimistic, more sexual Travis Bickle, let's say. And the film working, basically, in my opinion, rests on Richard Gere and his his cock. You see a bit of cock there. Y'all know me. My name is McManus. I just want to say thank you for turning me <laughs> on to that. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but from uh, Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo, Norm MacDonald's speech. So funny. <laughs> My he pussy. <laughs> I did not stand up. I stood down. I stood down. <laughs> now you want me to ja- I joined this yin-yin. <laughs> anyway, I feel like we need to start using the words man whore, mangina, he pussy, vagina. Uh, I thought Why this- are you putting that down <laughs> on your he pussy? When I have How am I to tell, tell him my, that? I have to tell my bye. <laughs> very so, good. Yeah, yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Check out the uh, sequel to this Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo, and also Juice Bigelow, Male Gigolo. Which is actually a very funny film. I've only ever seen clips of Norm in uh, yeah. the second one, but I think the first one is actually quite <laughs> funny. I thought this film was good. I mean, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I thought, I, first of all, I was shocked because uh, in my mind, Richard Gere is like the older, sort of more reserved. It'd been a long time. I guess I probably had seen some of the early 80s stuff, but like... Even, You'd forgotten. Yeah, I'd forgotten that Women was, of a certain age have yeah, not forgotten no, about I'm Richard sure, Gere. I'm sure. Like, He's the heartthrob of their lives, I think. This is, uh, you know, this this is who he is and fair play, but like, I just thought he was amazing. And he was like, you know, fourth choice or something for this. It was going to be Travolta. That's right, Travolta Christopher was Christopher Reeve, one. Chevy Chase. 
Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase. I mean, I'd like to see that movie, but it would be very Fletch, wouldn't it? Yeah, I want to see Chevy Chase in it now, in a remake. <laughs> yeah, just a grumpy old gigolo. <laughs> but yeah, gear is spectacular and his penis in in it. I think the only thing that threw me was the ending. I think up until the ending, I was completely on board, but... I got two things with it, but the ending is... My disappointment, my other disappointment is directly tied to the ending. The ending is pants. How about I just fire through the plot then? Julian Kay is a male escort in Los Angeles whose clientele is upper-class women. His job supports and requires an expensive taste in cars and clothes and affords him a luxury Westwood apartment. Are we supposed to know about the neighborhood? He is blatantly materialistic as he strives to merit inclusion into the class of people who make up his clientele. He takes pleasure in his work from being able to sexually satisfy women, offering and selling his body to women. This is not, not the to best. Men. Uh, and not any rough <clears throat> not, tricks not, not either. Not to men, yeah. And he does, he, very, he makes that very clear uh, explicitly using language that is not appropriate. Oh, yeah, that's right. Julian's procurer, Anne, that's his madam, because he's a pee bitch, uh, and his his madam, Anne, sends him on an assignment with a wealthy old widow, Mrs. Dobrun, who is visiting town. Afterwards, he goes to the hotel bar and meets Michelle Stratton, a California state senator's wife, who becomes obsessed with him. Julian's pimp. So he's got a procurer. He's got, like, a madam-type lady, but he's also got pimp, Leon. He's got... Uh, What's his name? Is that the guy from Predator? That it was is. Name, yeah, it is. It's uh, Matt is that from him? Predator. Oh, wow. Anytime. I'll make you bleed. Really quiet. It's an mm. old ear. Yeah, okay. Wow. Like, so, and he's a very effective gay pimp in this. He is. I, I, I'm guessing like actors like that probably in the 70s and early 80s had to do a lot of rough roles before they could, you know, eventually he was, you know, full on action star. But before that... He He's good in this, pimp. though. He's good and scary. I don't really buy him as, like... Because he's, he's a pimp, but he's also, like... I think he's also... I mean, he's also turning tricks as well. But I don't really buy That's him right, as yeah. a prostitute. I buy him as a pimp, but not a prostitute. Fair. Is that weird that I'm saying I wouldn't pay money? I pay money to Julian, but not to Leon. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You'd pay money to Juli- to Leon for Julian. Yes, exactly. Correct. Yeah. I would let I trust Leon to hold the cash <laughs> and buy Julian something nice but, later in the week. But by God, he better no, he better send Julian over, or there's going to be hell to pay. I'm going to be going. I'll be the biggest Karen they've ever seen. I'm going straight to customer services. Anyway, Julian's pimp Leon. Sends him to Palm Springs on a substitute, in inverted commas, yeah, assignment. he gets sent house. on a rough trick. He does indeed, to the house of Mr. Ryman, a wealthy financier. Ryman asks Julian to have sadomasochistic sex with his wife, Judy, while he is watching them. The next day, Julian berates Leon for sending him to a rough trick and makes it clear he declines kinky or gay assignments. That's right. Leon warns... Just old ladies. <laughs> just sweet, sweet old ladies, please, for me. It's my favorite flavor. Leon warns Julian that the wealthy older woman he serves will turn on him and discard him without a second thought. As Julian begins to have a relationship with Michelle, he learns that Judy Ryman has been murdered. Da-da-da-da. Los Angeles Police Department Detective Sunday identifies Julian as a prime suspect. Pretty good actor, this guy. I liked him. Yeah, Hector Elizondo. He's a legend. Though Julian was with Lisa Williams, another client on the night of the murder, 
She protects her marriage by not providing an alibi for Julian. Oh, no. Julian discovers evidence about the murder. He realizes that he's been framed and grows increasingly desperate. His clothes become rumpled. He goes unshaven. <laughs> rumpled, is that a word? He goes unshaven and drives a cheap <laughs> rental car after painstakingly searching his Mercedes and finding Judy's jewelry. Did somebody write this into practicing their English? <laughs> yes. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, it's fine. You're 100% correct. If anyone would like uh if anyone would like to improve the world, please go to the uh American Gigolo Wikipedia page and see if you can rewrite this uh synopsis because it is horrendous. He neglects to pick up an important client for Anne that he had been scheduled to escort, angering Anne and causing her to shun him. Julian warns Michelle that he's in trouble and hoping to protect her, he tells her to leave him alone. Julian concludes that Leon and Ryman are the ones trying to frame him and that one of Leon's other gigolos was the murderer. Right, this is the part that I have a problem with, right? I just couldn't, I, I just, like, Julian figures out what's going on. He understands that he's been framed. So he goes to the person who's framed him and goes like, are you guys framing me? Is this a frame? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't like, have a problem with that. But I think I, 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 think I th- thought too highly of the character. Maybe in retrospect, like, he is completely pathetic. I think he is he seemed, pathetic. He seemed yeah. pretty cool to me. He had sex with old ladies. What's well, not? Cool I think about he does. I think he doesn't get that nobody cares about him, which sucks. But that also carries the theme of the movie. Okay, get to the ending, and I'll talk about what I think. Well, there's a few more sentences to go. Julian goes to confront Leon, telling him the truth and trying to clear his name. Why would you tell the truth to the person who's framing you? Leon refuses to help him and remains implacable in a fit of rage. <laughs> Implacable. Good on you, practicing your English, whoever wrote this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a fit of rage, Julian pushes Leon from the apartment balcony. No problem with Good that. Good seeing personally. this. Yeah, well shot, get I, him I out thought. There. Get him out there. Although Julian immediately regrets his action and tries to save him, Leon nevertheless falls to his death. I liked the way they shot that. Like, if you compare it to something as flimsy as the guy falling from the building in um, Point Blank. Oh, Do you remember God, that? It looks, yeah. it looks like a sheet, looks like a sheet of <laughs> a paper. A sheet of paper, yeah. That's but no, true. I thought I thought it was good in this because you get all the tension of him trying to hang on to the guy and not let yeah, him fall. Yeah, you're right, actually. It did look yeah. like a real, yeah, yeah. A real and you, the, fall to his death. They didn't worry with it. Like, you got, all, you got the dramatic impact of it from the acting. You didn't need the splatter, which uh, I, I liked that. Okay, here we go. Final sentences. With no one to help him, Julian ends up in jail, helplessly awaiting trial for Judy's murder. Michelle reconciles with Julian by telling the police that she was with Julian. Fucking stop saying Julian. That she was with <laughs> Julian the night of Judy's murder, sacrificing her reputation and marriage to save him. Right. So the dreaded momentum that the film builds kind of exposes the greatest weakness, which is its ending, in my opinion. The film's ending, yeah. which is the pickpocket ending, defies all the thematic logic and world building of the film to that point. The whole point of the story is that Julian has no one and in his superficial world, he's ultimately disposable. They try to knot the happy ending up with the love story and his relationship with um, Lauren Hutton's character. What's her name? Michelle. Michelle Stratton. Who is underdeveloped. um, and I don't know. She seemed to have a fairly nice pair. Party to the <laughs> weirdest sex scene I've ever seen in anything. 
Wait, Do you remember wait. this? No, no. I, I, this is you've already commented on a weird sex scene. Hey, listen, me and you might have different sex. I all my <laughs> sex is in 1980, and Richard Gere's there, and it's like, ooh, and a shot of the legs, and then a shot of the breasts, and, and I don't know. It's a very strange sex scene. Hey, Schrader's um, doing Calvinist sex. <laughs> to be fair, to be. I mean, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's a fair point. But yeah, these two weaknesses aside, it's uh, suitably sleazy, it's pacey, there are stakes, and gear is great. It's made me interested to watch the John Bernthal series that just came out, which uh, reportedly gives us Julian's origin story, and it takes place 15 years later, after he gets out of prison. Even though at the end of the film it's implied that your one is... Anyway, who knows? Um, so apparently it's, it's not in like 95 or something. Something like that, yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's and not very good. Still, yeah, I heard his crap, but he's still listening to Blondie. Yeah, because it's the it's the theme, theme theme song uh, from the show. Is it? Yeah, right. the ending is a total bummer, though, isn't it? Though, because Julian is not supposed to get a happy ending. Why wow. did they do that? He's supposed to give happy endings. Hey, <laughs> come on now. But for real, did you not feel that? I felt like. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, it did feel like a bit of a cop-out. I was like, well, I mean... Why when, did they do that? He, I don't understand. I just feel like the ending, like I said, from that point where he goes to Leon and is like, hey, Leon, I figured out that you are double-crossing me. I'm innocent. He's <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> come, you've got to help me. I didn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know who's a funny uh, character with no lines? You know the evil uh, other man whore? Yeah, the, the, well, the one who, the like, murderer <laughs> the, guy. Yeah, yeah, the one yeah. who doesn't talk. The evil man whore. Uh, yeah, I thought he was funny. He should have joined the Yin Yin. The Yin Yin? Is that the Shield Society? A giant this Yin Yin. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let me tell you about some of these cast members then. So, first of all, we've got Richard Gears, Julian Kay. Richard Gears, originally from Philadelphia. Both of Gears' parents were Mayflower descendants. He's as American as Mom's apple pie, a pie which he probably tried to shag. Yes, he was mad into that kind of crack back in the day, famously. Yeah. I mean, the the personal life section of his Wikipedia entry reads like a phone book. Really? Yeah, he's, Just... he's this guy's banged out half of Hollywood and then employed the other half as uh, rodent wranglers. <laughs> to, to fetch rodents from his ass. Is that the so. implication? <clears throat> and what hey, I knew I'm he was, saying nothing. He had, I don't know what he he's had, doing. He had a thing with Cindy Crawford, I know that. Who else? Who else is on the oh, list? Man. Anyone. Anyone you ever heard of. Johnny Depp? Johnny Depp, he's on there. Nice, man. I'd love to show anyone Johnny else. Depp. Would you, you like to take a stab? I guess any others? Uh, I will. Uh, Julia Roberts. She's not on the. She's not on here. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. In fact, I would say it makes it more probable. <laughs> Go on, give me the names. Uh, well, I'll tell you one whose uh, daughter died today. Oh, right. Or the other day, or yesterday, even. Jane from the Naked Gun. Priscilla Presley. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, apart from that, we've got Kim Basinger slash Basinger, Basinger. Nice. Tuesday Wild. Don't know who that is. Yeah, she's like a she's an actor. She's an actress from like the fifties and stuff. He's he shagged a lot of older ladies. Barbara Streisand. Much like Julian. Padma Lakshmi. Do you know who that is? No. Salman Rushdie's ex-wife. Well, I know Salman Rushdie has been married to nothing but hotties. So fair play. Yeah. Uh, Richard Gere studied for two years at UMass Amherst on a gymnastics scholarship before dropping out and getting into professional theatre. His first major acting role was in the original London stage version of Grease in 1973. As Danny. 
I assume so. Yeah, I would say so. Gear's first major Hollywood starring role was in Terrence Malick's 1978 film Days of Heaven. Which what? he's very good in, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, you've seen that. I haven't seen it. Recently, yeah. I, were, I rewatched it last year. It's an excellent film. What are the other Richard Gere roles that come to mind? Well, Pretty Woman is the big one. Yeah. Surely. Then, of course, you have The Jackal, where he does Northern <laughs> Irish, versus Bruce Willis. Um, I joined this union of assassins. <laughs> I can't think off the top of my head. Let me. Uh, I guess I, I would go like like Primal Fear is the first that comes to mind for me. Primal Fear is a big one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Opposite um, Norton, Officer Old and Nordies. a Gentleman. Oh, of course, yeah. Of, that's a great movie. I'm a, where we belong. I'm a big fan of that movie. To be honest, I really like it. I've watched there it a fair are. few times. I think it's great. Um, oh, I just thought of one that I used to be a big fan of, but I daren't watch it these days for fear of ruining it. Its memory. Uh, First night. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember. You used to really like that. Uh, I remember kid. that if you want, if you're if if, <laughs> if you're ever engaged in medieval one-on-one combat then you have to fight as though, like, you have to fight like you don't care if you live or die. That's the one thing I learned from that film. That's how and it is. It, it, it has stood by you, to be fair. The amount of fights you've gotten through, and now you're about yeah. to take the throne of Montenegro. Yeah. Multiple film critics and media outlets have cited Gear as one of the best actors never to have received an Academy Award nomination. He's a very good actor. He's to be solid. He's famously, mm. Richard Gere is a Buddhist. He's also banned from every pet shop in the tri-state area. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Lauren Hutton yes. played Michelle Stratton. Lauren Hutton is a model. That's even right, yeah. Now, even now, she but was initially rejected by agencies due to the gap between her teeth. Which but then became gaps became point. fashionable, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's also a motorcycling enthusiast, I believe. Yeah, she had a, a, a horrible accident. I'll talk about that in a second. In the 1970s, she signed a massive contract with Revlon, which adjusted for inflation would be around $1.5 million for 20 days of work. She's a significant model. Fair play. Yeah. Not a great actor. Well, film-wise, her most prominent role, aside from American Gigolo, is probably The Gambler, starring Jimmy Can, written by professional bastard James Toback. And uh, and remade in 2014 with Marky Mark. Yes, that's right. I've only seen the Marky Mark remake. I refuse. It was directed by Rupert Wyatt, who I thought was going to become a good, a more prominent That's not director. a good film anyway. That's not a good film. And it made me kind of curse myself because, as you know very well, I, I'm a bit of a fetishist for anything Jesus, 70s Hollywood. I'm a bit of a fetishist for fascists. Yeah, yeah. No, but I love the, I, I should have just watched the original, which I've heard is very good. Well, on the point of Hutton and motorbikes, in October 2000, Hutton joined the motorbike group, which included actors Dennis Hopper, Lawrence Fishburne, and Jeremy Irons. What a group, right? To celebrate the Art of the Motorcycle exhibit at the Hermitage Guggenheim Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. Prior to the journey, Hutton informed the Las Vegas Review-Journal, I love the feeling of being a naked egg atop that throbbing steel. You feel vulnerable, but so alive. En route, while going over 100 miles per hour, Hutton crashed near Hoover Dam on the border between the U.S. states of Arizona and Nevada and suffered multiple leg fractures, a fractured arm, broken ribs and sternum, and a punctured lung. Hopper, Jesus! <laughs> Hopper later recalled from before the start of the ride, she had on a little helmet, sort of tied under her chin. It was cute. And Jeremy Irons came <laughs> up to her and said, you gotta be kidding. He took it off her and gave her a proper helmet. 
Oh, I'm, I'm trying to. Oh, give me a second till I hear that in Jeremy Byron's voice, and I'll say it into the mic. Hold on, hold on. You got, to, you got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. Nice. Yeah, yeah. In 2005, at the age of 61, Hutton posed naked for Big Magazine. Hutton said of her decision. Which magazine? Big. Oh. Yeah. Why is she a big lady at that point? <laughs> I don't think so. She said, uh, "I want them women." Not to be ashamed of who they are when they're in bed. Society has told us to be ashamed. The really important thing is that women understand not to listen to a two thousand year old patriarchal society. Wow. I, ad- I actually agree. <laughs> I actually agree with that. And I think if well, any woman wants to pose naked in a magazine, they should. And if uh, they want yeah. to skip that step and just send the nudes directly to the podcast, I think that would also help smash the patriarchy. I mean, I admire the recycling of teenage opinions to try and stay relevant, but um, <laughs> come on, man. It's a brutal, the brutal roast she, of uh, Lauren Hutton. She didn't even do it right. Yeah, I feel bad because, I mean, she's not good in this movie. She's not given a great, she's not given a lot to do now, to be fair. We're just supposed to just buy that love story. There's one very odd scene in the middle of this where they're just hanging around his apartment and it's like domestic. And it's like, this is a gigolo. Yeah, and but you're... they still have to live somewhere. Hey, I know. I think that's nice. That was like that was the suggestion that maybe, uh, maybe Julian could find something more. Yeah, but I, that but that's the thing is like her character is so bland. I just didn't buy it. Yeah, fair enough. Julian's way more interesting. Hmm. Certainly. Yeah, she struck me a little bit as like the female character who's just desperately looking to meet someone more interesting than her. <laughs> yeah. Right. But then Julian, in the end, when he's looking for his his pimp, what's the pimp's name again? Leon. Or oh, you mean when the lo- lady? Or no, no. When he's looking for Leon, yeah. um, and he goes to one of those clubs, and um, I have to say, you're always recommending them to me, but I yeah. never that they they that actually looks like a lot of fun. I it's have to me, say, Bill Rawls should come on down. Just guys having fun. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on the topic of Leon, played by Bill Duke. Uh, Bill Duke is best known for his roles in 80s action fare, such as Commando and Predator, as we've already mentioned, anytime. He's also directed quite a few features, the most celebrated of which is probably 1992's Deep Cover, starring Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum, which was added to the Criterion Collection in 2021. That's not a bad movie, as I remember. It's been years it. since I saw it. But it seems to be like it's in the Criterion Collection. Yeah, so is Armageddon, man. I mean, don't... I, I don't understand what point you're making when you say that, when you say <laughs> it like that. Yeah, I think I I remember seeing Deep Cover. But uh, Bill Duke directed it, fair play. He did, indeed, he directed a bunch of stuff. Anything Leon else him. I would have heard of? Uh, Hoodlum, I remember, was one. What else did Bill Duke do? I can't remember now. Bill? I'll get him up. He's done some decent stuff. He's also done some, like, fairly middle of the road. Wow, he's not looking well these days, huh? I mean, he's 70-something. 79. 79. Come on now. Yeah, sorry, I take it back. He's looking splendid. Uh, Yeah, Hoodlum, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. <laughs> What's not to love? That's the one where Whoopi goes to a high school, right? She goes somewhere. I, I saw the first one in the cinema, definitely. Actually, no, I saw the second one too. It's got Lauren Hill in it, I remember. Yeah, yeah, She and she's in... Yeah, wow, he's directed a brace of films. Fair play. The Golden Spiders, A Nero Wolf Mystery. Who could forget? What a legend. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Next up, Hector Elizondo as Detective Joe Sunday. Great character actor, great face. 
a New Yorker yes. of Puerto Rican descent. He excelled at basketball and baseball as a child. He was even scouted by various MLB teams. He's probably best known for his role in Pretty Woman, reuniting with Richard Gere. He Who's played, he in Pretty Woman? He played Barney, the hotel manager who teaches Julia Roberts to be less of a, a trashy hua. Uh, his role lasted only 10 minutes, but led to a Golden Globe nomination. I can't remember him in it, but that is a memorable character in Just, yeah, Pretty I mean, Woman. That face pr- is there. It, it, it's true. I like. I think probably the thing is when you think of that scene, you only think of her going back into the shop and going, "Big mistake, huge." Yeah, mistake. yeah, exactly. No one thing remembers the scenes where where she's been trained. I, I, I seem to remember reading at one point that that was first written as like a serious movie. That sounds about right, or like yeah. a like a thriller or something. Yeah, it was. I'm I'm reading it right now. No, right. Um, it was a dark drama. The relationship between Vivian and Edward also originally involved controversial themes, including Vivian being addicted to drugs. Part of the deal was that she had to stay off cocaine for a week. Uh, mm. Yeah, and that's what Gear signed up to. And then when it turned into like a nice romantic comedy, he was like, "What is this? This is shit." Okay, three more cast members. I'm going to fire through them. First one, Francis Bergen. I've got no one from Mishima, by the way. There's nothing interesting about anybody there. Francis Bergen is Mr. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Got that. (laughs) We'll say it again. No, leave it in. It was pretty funny. (laughs) All right, hold on. I've got nothing. (laughs) I mean, you're right. You are actually right. Um, I've got nothing interesting about anybody from Mishima. Wow. You know. They're all Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So what else you got? Frances Bergen is Mrs. Laudner, the older lady that Julian escorts. Frances Bergen was the mother of Candace Bergen. Candace Bergen, uh, the lady who played Murphy, yeah. Murphy Brown famously, she was married to a director, nope. a French director who moved to America. Uh, that we discussed. Louis Mal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Candace Bergen married to Louis Mal. Candace Bergen's mum was the older lady that Julian uh, goes to, like, the auction and stuff with. Ah, no, th- like, he, ha- he he has more of a connection with her than with Lauren Sutton's character. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, he gets on better with some of the, the older ladies. You know, they've, had, they've got more life experience. David- they, know the way, they know the way around a hamster. Hell yeah, that's right. What about that scene with the pet shop that got cut? Did you see that in the deleted scenes? Where Richard, no. where Richard Gere, Julian goes into a pet shop and the, the pet shop uh, sales assistant is like, get out. We know what you do with these hamsters. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> David it's, it's such a funny thing to, to have persisted about his life. He's got to have gotten annoyed about it, ashamed about it, gotten to laugh about it, get annoyed about it again. It's like, <laughs> what, like What if he doesn't know? What if no one's ever mentioned it? Oh, <laughs> Maybe he, he doesn't have the internet. Uh, to be fair, that was like a rumor even back in the nineties, like when the early nineties, yeah, 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 even pre-internet. Therefore, it's true. Like uh, Rod Stewart with the pint of semen in his stomach. Well, I heard that about a lot of people, though. This is it. Yeah, it yeah. Was, the the rumor seventies, uh, but it's, it's like um, no one people else having is, their yeah. Tons of people were told about. Uh, not tons of people were were mentioned for the, having their stomach pumped, but only one person, as far as I know, has been talked about for the old gerbil thing gerbil slash hamster what about ribs removed to suck cock that's marilyn suck one's own mm-hmm. it's that's, also that's prince fact. oh that's true okay 
So that just put this just this is just adding weight to the whole rodent thing. You are actually right, yeah. No one else has been accused of this, as yeah. far as I know. Well, we've solved that. Indeed, we have. That's <laughs> fact. Factual now. David Cryer played Lieutenant Curtis. David Cryer is the father of two and a half men's John Cryer. Huh. Isn't that okay. nice? It's somewhere that is nice. lots of money. <laughs> David Cryer is best known for his role as Furman in Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera, a role which he played for 19 years. He also appeared in Escape from Alcatraz as a guard who makes fun of Clint Eastwood's uh, artistic skills. Can't remember him. Yeah, he's just one of the guards who's walking around going like, Yeah, you fucking dick. Piece of shit. Last up is a lady who we have seen before because she appeared in uh, The Long Goodbye. Nina Van Palant, who played Anne, uh, Julian's madam, the Swedish madam who Julian works for. This is her is second she appearance. The... Is she Hayden? What's yeah, his Star- Sterling, what? Sterling, Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden, Sterling Hayden Christensen. <laughs> Sterling Hayden's um, wife from That's Long right. Goodbye. Is yeah. that her? She plays the character. No, I didn't Eileen recognize her, Wade. but yeah, yeah. Um, so American Gigolo was good. There were problems Solid with enough. it. We've we've watched yes. far worse on the podcast. It had a nice tone to it. As I say, I was surprised. I was surprised to see Richard Gere like this, and I just thought it was it was entertaining, but it fell apart a little towards the end. But, I mean, for so many reasons, I, do, I don't even know could I say I would recommend it to people, but Mishima is a great film. I'm not necessarily saying I'd recommend it to people because it is, you know, it's not easy watching, so to speak, but I think Mishima is a great film. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, I don't know if I could recommend it or not. But I do think it's genius. Yeah, but I, I, I totally agree with you. Ad- I don't know if people would enjoy it. Like, I don't know who you recommend it to. It's funny because I we've, I guess both of us have put this film off for years. Yeah. Every time I saw the image of it, it was definitely not... Like, it, the the actual reality of watching the film was nothing like the image of I, I, that I had. No, I thought no, it was going right. to be so much more serious and... I mean, obviously, it's a very serious theme. That I mean, the serious topic and uh, what they're covering. But it's even difficult to talk about right now because I want to cover it adequately. Because the thing is about this story is okay. I'll try and cover it on 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 two fronts, on three fronts actually that I can think of of why I think this is just a, a, just a, a great piece of cinema. First of all, and we say this a lot, but how the hell did this get made? <laughs> this is nuts that anybody made this. This cost five million to make but in a time when money million. money wasn't grown in on trees exactly, and they were after blowing a load of money on one from the heart. Also, by the way, it's like like a lot of the same funders. It's crazy that this got made. I'm not saying it shouldn't have gotten made. I'm really, really glad it did. Second of all, it's a film. It's di- it's actually it's not that it's diff- difficult is the wrong adver- uh, adjective. It's almost it's inappropriate. Different to analyze this film because this film is itself an analysis. It's looking at this mad guy's life through his literature and just trying to put a finger on what exactly was happening. And then the third reason, I, ju- I just think it's so interesting because it it somehow conveys some of the power of literature through cinema yeah. in a literature-like way. It's not didactic. It, the film doesn't make sense on cinematic terms. It makes sense 
via the medium of film, but on kind of literature terms in a strange way. Do you know what I mean? I think this film only works because Mishima as an author is similar to how Paul Schrader is as a filmmaker. Because he wrote books about himself and Schrader kind of makes films about himself. Absolutely, exactly right. So, like, that's the only way that it functions. I was trying to think, like, I was looking at a list of, like, various biopics and trying to find anything remotely similar to this. And I was thinking, like, topsy-turvy-ish just in showing... Like mm. uh, just in showing, like the the creation that you know the the yeah yeah yeah. But topsy turvy is less interested yeah. in the lives of the guys than it is in the epoch. Yeah yeah yeah. I just can't like, think. Of this is this is such like a. It's looking at a person, looking at this artist through the lens of his work, but only because his work is a reflection of his personality. And the thing is, is like there there are certain scenes in the film that depict this well enough. But this guy was a celebrity. He was a very yeah. famous person. He, and th- him doing this surprised absolutely everybody. He's the original January 6th. Yeah, I, was, I was thinking exactly the same thing. It would be like if... I couldn't think who, who would be the equivalent. Like fucking like J.K. Rowling or something <laughs> like it. J.K. Rowling walks up <laughs> in the Capitol and is like, I'm going to fucking shoot myself in the head because I've been called a turf <laughs> five million times. But like this guy was kind of like the, the military had time for him. Like they let him use their facilities yeah, and to, stuff. Well, you, you, were talk, you mentioned before his like shield society thing. Yeah. His own little private military gang. That's so funny to me that they had their uniforms. But I mean, I just... It, it all speaks to, like, a different time. Uh, I didn't know anything about this period of, of history of, like, left and right wing fighting against each other post-war. Oh, I did. Well, like, I'm going to run through the story a tiny little yeah, bit. Yeah, um, I'll run through the actual story and then the way Schrader tells it. So, basically, for those not in the know, uh, what we know as World War Two actually began, like, somewhere around the early 20s in Japan, where um, they developed this sort of imperial militaristic society whereby the emperor was... Well, I mean, they, they were uh, fighting Russia back in, like, what was... When was the first Sino-Russian War? Is that not, like... Oh, that not, was in not, the not, not late the 19th century, war. I think. Yeah, 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 like 19... Or is it that? Is it that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the imperial culture goes earlier than this, but I'm just talking about what they... The World War Two for Japan began about 15 years before the rest of the world mm-hmm. uh, got onto it. But yeah, they were fighting, like they had their imperial society going before that. Military central, and this guy was born into that society in the 20s and came of age in, in the 1940s and became a very, very popular writer, um, kind of a poetic realist, a very prolific writer, wrote a lot. I actually for, lo- for I- long time listeners to the podcast, you might recommend you might uh, recognize what I'm about to say. Uh, in a kind of a Beau Travail way, he got very into militaristic aesthetics, working out, uh, working out. Yeah, yeah, like he did a because he became uh, sensitive about being scrawny, and basically. You might, I don't know, you probably didn't because you don't watch comedy. I shouldn't watch comedy. But a few years ago, Dave Chappelle had this great uh, bit in one of his specials where he said, um, man, we bombed the masculinity out of Japan. Uh, you know, the, you know, we dropped those bombs and now they're just all Hello Kitty and shit like that. That was <laughs> kind of... Uh, accurate. I understand yeah, what he's saying. Well, you've lived in Japan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know exactly what he's talking about. And Mishima took issue with this and then staged a kind of a... It wasn't a coup. No, was he was he was trying to. It was supposed to be a coup. 
but they just never went along with it. Oh, so he wasn't supposed to commit seppuku at the end of it. I no, I think that was just because it didn't work. Like they assembled the the troops yeah. at the Ichigaya base mm. and you know, they just <laughs> which I thought was quite funny of like what well, well, I mean when we get to the plot synopsis but and they're all just talking shit. They're all just like, get off the fucking <laughs> stage. He bombed. Like, he yeah, bombed he did bomb. so badly. And that then, he committed seppuku. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, that's what this is. This is about, like, the it, it, it's, it's, a, it's basically stand-up comedy of someone bombing so badly that they have to kill themselves. Like, that's what I that c- is. I cried when he killed himself. I don't know why. It just, it struck me because it cut back to that uh, story, um, The Runaway Horses. Yeah. Um, Which is all based on on true events. Anyway, let's get back to the synopsis. To, because yes, no, a lot I didn't pack here. I didn't. I think we could run through it handily enough, but I didn't get to watch the uh, extras that you sent my way. And I would just like to ask: Do you have? Do you know how Paul Schrader got into this? Is there any explanation yeah. of that out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I listened to a bit of. I listened to some of the audio commentary, not the entire thing, but it was basically, so like you mentioned before, his brother, uh, Leonard Schrader, I don't know if you mm. mentioned that, but Leonard Schrader moved to Japan. Yes, um, well, and I didn't like, mention it, but I did know that. Yeah, he moved He moved to uh, avoid the draft because he was, he was going to get drafted. So he stayed there until like the age of 28 because he was going to get sent to Vietnam. But... Um, yeah, so straight, so Leonard Schrader had been basically telling his brother Paul, like, there's this guy, Mishima. He was a writer, and then he was gay, and then he did this mad old right-wing uh, coup attempt. And basically, Paul Schrader heard this story and was like, that's, like, the most interesting thing ever. Especially because, like, Paul Schrader's whole thing, which he's, he's talked about uh, frequently, is that... Angry man in the corner disapproving yeah. of society. Yeah, Schrader, yeah. you know, Schrader, it, yeah, so this is this alienated man, it, a thing that he's dubbed it God's lonely man. So, like, this fit perfectly with, you know, this general kind of taxi driver idea. He also, he says in the audio commentary, the big difference between this and taxi driver is that a lot of critics attacked him for taxi driver because the character of, like, the character of Travis Bickle was like this downtrodden, barely literate, you know, mm. not the smartest guy on the earth. Whereas here we've got Yukio Mishima, an artist. He speaks multiple languages. He's clearly very intelligent. So it's like the other end of society, but telling a fairly similar story. Yeah, and just, um, I don't know, really effectively disenfranchised. But like the most interesting, the most interesting thing about this film is the approach that Schrader takes. Yeah. And the, the, even though they're not the best... Uh, the, the best bits of filmmaking for me in it are the, for want of better... Present day at the time of filming, let's say, or like... 1970. The, 1970s, yeah. the 1970s, like, that's really well made. But the contra... Like, particularly the middle story, uh, Kyoko's Room, that's Kyoko's also got house, the best... Yeah. Kyoko's House, that's also got the best uh, scoring, I, I, I think, that bit. Um, yeah. Oh no! no actually, like the too. the opening credits has incredible scoring. But um, just how they inform the development of that sort of mentality and that mindset. I'll some uh, let, let let's start at the very beginning. Okay. A very good place to start. Okay, so we're introduced to him on some morning in 1970, where he's about to go off and do his coup. So um, he gets up. He says he's not interested in breakfast. He's got the gayest dressing gown in the world. It should be a hint to some people. 
And then he says, all right, I'm off my trot. He puts on his uniform. He's setting out. He's going to go for it. Then we all of a sudden cut back to his childhood, where his grandmother took him away from his mother and tried to raise um, him by herself for as long as she could. And, and she, all of this is in black and white. I mean, this, they, they, yeah. they, that's how that's classified. There's three modes of filmmaking in, in this yeah. film. So there's a present day, which is shot in, it's Regular really color. nicely shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's very good cinematography. Yeah. Then stark sort of black and white for the uh, yeah, personal uh, flashbacks. Yeah, yeah. And then there's this sound stage, almost one from the heartish uh, quality mm. to the um, scenes uh, scenes from Mishima's novels. And the device here, it's like I, like I was saying at the start, it, it uses what is normally an energy from literature to tell a story in cinema. Not cinematically, it tells it in a literature way. It's really, really, it's great stuff. And it's great that they got to make it. And Schrader has said many times over that if, if he was to pick two films out of his career to stand by, it would be Mishima and Taxi Driver. And yeah. I think... Like, one is a like, director, one is a, the writer. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is quite a thing to pull off because it really, really does work, in my opinion. You just get to watch the evolution of his sensibilities anyway. So um, after he's been living with his, um, grand, his grandmother for a bit, then he uh, tries to join the army, but... He can't because he coughs too much in the examination. The doctor speculates he's got tuberculosis. I've read somewhere that people reckon that that was him exaggerating it, so he could could get out of the military duty. That was also that was also in one of his early books, and it's it's and it's something that happened to him. But I mean, I don't know if he was faking per se. He had a cold apparently at the time. But when he thought about it afterwards, he realized, like, no, I'm like, I'm not willing to actually die for my country. This was in 1944, and I think most of the most of the uh, everyone knew it was everyone who got yeah everyone who got drafted then got sent to the Philippines, and I think they got they got torn up. Yeah, yeah, they would have they would have all got destroyed. Yeah. So then we've got the first one, which is the uh, Golden Pavilion. Yeah. And as you mentioned beforehand, it it, it, it like it, you know, so it's v- very much filmed on sound stages. We're not in reality, and it's for a reason. These are stories. We're in storybook land when this happens. So we're basically getting to see this guy's artistic train of thought, how he interprets the world at crucial moments in his life. That's the genius of the. I, 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 it's so good. Mm-hmm. The the fact that they lean into the non-realism to tell you what this guy was thinking that yeah. led him up to this incredible. That's it. Act. I mean, you're right. It's like you're showing you're showing his thoughts, but you're showing his thoughts through the art that he produced. Like that's insane, but it only works because as an artist, the art that he was producing was like directly what he wanted to say. Because, I mean, otherwise, imagine if it was about, like, uh, Michael Crichton, and it's like, okay, <laughs> there's dinosaurs. Now. I'd watch that. <laughs> and then there's, like, robot ga- robot cowboys. <laughs> the movie is just a guy going to Starbucks every day, and then it cuts to just robots and dinosaurs fighting. So then that story is basically, yeah, he's got a stutter. Well, the main character is a stutter, and he's friends with a guy with a club foot, and they're both trying to shag these ladies. And your man is, the, the clubfoot guy is way more confident. He's just like, look, we just shag him, all right? And then he uh, makes an arrangement, leaves your man alone with that one 
your one very much lives up to the reputation that Chinese girls like to spread about Japanese girls in that she's well up for it instantly. And she, um, she, t- she takes her top off, uh, but he's weird about touching her breasts or something. <laughs> and, and she's so, like, all right. Yeah, you're, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, window right, that's of opportunity it. is closed. And then he's talking to his maid and he's like, oh, my cock was so big. Oh, I was so horny. It was, could, could fill the world. And then his general thesis is um, he can't wait for American bombers to come along and destroy the Golden Pavilion so that the beauty of it can finally be appreciated by it being destroyed. Mm. And when the bombers don't come, he just burns the temple down. Which, I mean, that's yeah. like, the, uh, that happened because um, Stimson, was it? Henry Stimson, the, the U.S. Secretary of War, decided to change the uh, bombing targets for dropping nukes. Because originally it was going to be Kyoto, Kyoto. Yeah, that's and right, and Hiroshima, but they, they ended up, yeah, well, Stimson was like, it's a beautiful city, Kyoto, so... The only reason they bombed Nagasaki is because it was cloudy over the the other target they they were going to. I think it was Kokura, and uh, it was cloudy, so the bomber just kept going and then dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, which is hardcore to be to have a bomb dropped on you because it was cloudy somewhere else. So anyway, next we go back to the black and white section, and he's famous and he's kind of a bohemian, right in a way, tap 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 a ruin, and um. We very so yeah, we see clips of him as a gay dude, um, but he's very sensitive about his body. Another gay guy calls him flabby or something. He's like, "Don't make that joke." I think that's and very then, harsh. What? No, I just think it's harsh that that guy. Like, I don't think he's in bad shape. You know? No, no, he's not. He's not at all. It's uh, it goes I to think, show how how I sensitive poor Mishima must have been. If he had met Leon, Leon could have gotten plenty of work. Yeah, I think so. He was just, you know, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. If he was in L.A. in 1980. He's a good-looking man. He's got well, a good shape in his chest. Yeah. Next, we go on to uh, Kyoko's house. The story of which is there's this aspiring actor who is friends, to, friends with his mother almost to the point that he's like, almost, he's nearly gay, basically, um, but he's not. Um, I think you can read that into most of the, the characters that Mishima created. And the, yeah, her place is basically, she owns a coffee shop, a diner, and it's owned by the Yakuza, basically. And he makes a deal with the Yakuza boss, who's a lady, that she can have him own him like a slave, essentially, uh, in a, in, and in exchange, his mother will get to keep the business. And then the Yakuza boss is so overwhelmed by his youthful beauty, she gets her kicks on destroying it. And her ultimate fan- fantasy is to stand over his bleeding corpse and then drink poison. And uh, that's exactly do. how that's exactly how the story ends. It's the most compelling of the three stories for me, anyway. I I, I think. I yeah. found myself most drawn into that one. And then the next stage of um, Mishima's life, he's getting to be super famous, but also more outspoken about how he thinks Japan should re- revert to revering the emperor. Um, I don't know if you, I, like, uh, some of the stuff I sent you, I, uh, one of the things is him speaking English. There's, a, there's uh, oh, maybe I didn't send you that. There's one interview of him speaking French, and he speaks French perfectly. And there's another interview of him speaking English, and he sounds like he sounds like he's from like the 19th century. 
Like his English is see? excellent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. The 19th century. It's like, yeah, see, you won't catch me, copper. Classic 19th century um, speech. No, no, he sang. Yeah, he sang. I'd be like, very interested. To, you didn't send me that, but no, I would I be didn't, very I interested didn't. to I'll see that. In the, I'll stick it in the show notes. But it's he. He spoke excellent English, but it's so far. I mean, it's it's what you would. It it gives you some insight into how he probably look. I mean, how he speaks his his uh, first language also. Well, yeah, I mean, by all accounts, what stood him out as a writer was very verbose, very extravagant language, and had a like very prolific as well. Apparently, wrote for hours every night. I mean, as it shows in the movie, but apparently that's mm-hmm. true. So yeah, next thing we know, oh yeah, uh, he's expressing his uh, more right wing views outwardly, and people just sort of put up with him because he's also an amusing public figure which I looked up and that is true like he was a celebrity and in a fun way not in a weird Donald Trump way or anything like that that shit only came at the end of his life people were surprised by this thing that he did anyway we get to the third story that we're going to be showing which is Runaway Horses which is basically a a run through of what he would end up doing where this bunch of soldiers plan to go rogue and um, kill a bunch of industrialists. And they don't get very far. The lead, the lead one commits uh, seppuku. Seppuku? Seppuku. Seppuku. Then anyway, we flash back to the present, and him and his cronies arrive at the base. They get into the general's office and tie him up, and they have only three demands. First, they, they assemble the garrison at 11.30. We later learn it's too late. And he yeah. says, so assemble them right now. <laughs> Second, that they let uh, Mishima speak. And third, that they guarantee they'll be silent for the thing, which they are not. He goes out and he says this thing where he's basically like, look, we're all turning into a country of absolute bitches. Capitalism and politicians are just taking us away. The heart of this country needs to be with the military. And people just start going, I fucking, ah. which, like, it's interesting. Because <laughs> the thing is, it, it was probably so close to the fact that Schrader didn't want to fuck around with the facts. Because give it another 20 years, they would have put some people in the crowd who were like, oh, this guy's got some things to say. They would have made it look like, but I've looked, like apparently it have was you, just have ridiculous. Have you seen the actual footage? No. There is footage. There's uh, no sound to it, but there's footage of him standing up on the top of the thing and all the like uh, soldiers standing around listening to his speech. Going, boo, boo earns. They were booing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were going like, I appreciate your writing. <laughs> this feels like you're overreaching. Yeah, and then he just goes in and uh, commits seppuku, and then they connect it back to the last story, and I, I don't know, like, I, I just love how artistically Schrader approaches this as opposed to didactically. Like, he doesn't try to explain it so much, but you get it by the way he tries to explain it. If that makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just this, like, what Mishima did was actually oddly beautiful in a way. Like, it's just total art. (laughs) Like, it's just, he lived it. Uh, And I'm not recommending people do it or anything. (laughs) I mean, it is is wild. Schrader talks about it a little bit on the audio commentary where he says, like, Japanese society kind of said like at the time when it happened in 1970 like we're going to deal with this in the future like in 10 years time we're going to sit down and just think about it and talk about what actually happened 
But he mm. said by like 10 years, by 1980, they were like, no, we're not touching this. No one's touching this. Because it's like a gay right wing guy who was in a, like one of their you know greatest writers stages a coup. There's there there are too many cogs there. There's there's too many things going on for people to be like left wing, right wing, gay, straight, whatever. They're like, okay, we're not touching this. Yeah, I'm very glad we got to we got around to watching it eventually. Though. Absolutely, like we said, it's hard to recommend, but if you're into film, certainly. This is uh yeah I, uh, it's uh, special like it is it, it shouldn't have gotten made at all like there's no way this film was going to make money in any age yeah. it's a miracle that they got the money to make it I do think as like, well um, as they did. like a lot of the heavy lifting is done by uh Eiko Ishioka's uh set design and also by that score I feel like Philip Glass's score is doing oh, I mean I, I I still think it's it's, it's, a, it's, cracking, I still think it's isn't a great it? film but I just think like it's one of those I I you've you've mentioned before like I like scores mean so much to me that can do a lot to me and I just think this score is it really elevates the film. I've listened to this score start to finish more times than I can count. I've already I've already listened to it like fully twice since we since I watched the film. It is terrific. There's yeah. two there's two in particular the um the opening one and Kyoko's house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I would agree with those choices. No, God, it's fantastic. At times, it doesn't even Some go with the movie see. properly. I have to say, like, because I had never. This is the first time I watched the film, but um, when it does, it does. And like, actually, they replay the intro theme at the end when the sun is rising and the the character from Runaway Horses is dying, yeah. and it's re- that I I cried at that bit. I just thought that was kind of beautiful. I just yeah. uh, like you said, I looked in the fields. I lived in Tokyo for two years, and I, I didn't know anything about this. I'd never heard of Mishima. I, I mean, I'd heard about it just from like, oh, that's a film that Paul Schrader made. And the thing, like going back and looking at it, like the last time I was in Japan, I lived like just on the other side of the river from the cemetery where he's buried. And years ago when I was in Tokyo, like I used to work at a university that was like 10 minutes walk from that military base. And I just had no, wow. co- I had no fucking idea. I just did not know. I bet you'd visit if you went back tomorrow. Absolutely, no? definitely. I would a hundred percent. Like, I, like that's the kind of thing where I'm like, yeah, I would go and check out these places because it is a, f- like it's so. We're we're outside of film now. We're just talking about history. It's a fascinating incident. Yeah, it's and it, it, it's absolutely wild. And like as we just mentioned, and in reference to what Dave Chappelle just said as well, is like. He is, he's basically getting on to the point that Dave Chappelle made in a joke years later that it's like the society had kind of had lost its oomph uh, in a way. And mm. I'm not agreeing with his, um, you know, idea of placing the military at the center of society. I'm not even agreeing with him. I'm just, I'm saying he had a point, but in a, no, I'm not saying he had a point. I'm saying... Donica backs right wing Japanese. No, how do you stores. say, how do you say... Like, like I get I, it, I suppose is the easiest Japan way to put great it. again. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly I what you. I mean. We do need to. Uh, fine, I'll go back to my original statement. It's just a, it's just a fascinating incident. Yes, no, I'd agree with that. It's like it's it, there's, it, there's nothing else. I was trying to consider it from like a psychological aspect of like what drove it. I mean, it's hinted at in the film a little bit of like Mishima's really concerned about his body failing. He's really, mm. really, uh, and I guess some of that stems from childhood where he was sort of sickly and weak 
and then he started working out and pumping iron but then he reached a point where he realized like this is going to go away it can't be maintained it's not forever so his was a sort of like he wanted to burn out rather than fade away but Mm. he did it at 45 you know which is not that young for if you're gonna if you're gonna burn out i'm as a famous person like i'm just trying to think of like (laughs) fucking hey man do you see what happened on the news today no 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 why what happened J.K. Rowling stood up on top of Stonehenge and addressed a bunch of people and shot herself. <laughs> I'm trying to think of someone who's like an actor and a writer. I was thinking like Ethan Hawke. <laughs> Ethan Hawke has taken... I would pay attention. I yeah, would pay attention to Ethan that. Ethan Hawke has taken a number of hostages, including Julie Delpy, and he's going to start executing He's going to shag all of them. <laughs> yeah, to death. Um, cool. Good week. I think it's fair to say a good week. Yeah, solid. That's what a, do you got for the chopping work. block? Fucker. Well, I uh, decided to choose a film that uh, satisfies two of my main interests, Trains and World War Two. So I went for 2013's The Railway Man, starring Colin Firth. Oh, very nice. I have a coin in my hand. Shall I do the toss? Well, you didn't say what yours was. I know, but I'm just asking. Beforehand. Yeah, why not? Okay, um, mine is a film... This, by the way, this was purely decided on the fact that my father-in-law slagged me off for having a film podcast and not having seen this film. This is a, tr- a completely true story. You should never uh, cave. You should be like Mishima to stop caving. <laughs> just, just say fuck you. I'm never gonna watch it. Um, you should I'm have gonna... stabbed yourself in the chest and ripped your fucking guts out right there. I tried to, but I was too much of a fucking pussy. So, shame. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, the Kevin Costner's big Arrival movie, basically, um, 1990s Dances with Wolves, which I have never seen. Classic. Okay. Uh, I'm going to toss, and then before, uh, so we've got a Spanish man's head. I think he's the king. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, one. Let's go one. We come one. R.I.P. Maxi Jazz. It is one. Yeah. Boom. Okay, so you have to. No, you have to all, guess mine. So okay, I think what you have would have given me with Dance with Wolves would have been open range. No, wrong. Okay, tell think me. think thematically rather than actor. It's a film that you put up for a toss. In fact, many moons ago, directed by old Scotty Coops. Oh, Hostiles. Yeah. Oh, fair play. Okay. Oh, well, I would have been, well... I haven't, I haven't see. seen it, Hostiles, but I assume that it's, uh, from what I understand about it, I think it's quite similar. It's like guy spends time yeah, no, with no, natives it is. and then... Have, have you seen it? No, no, but I'm aware of what it's, right. what it's about. I'm aware of it. What do you think I got? Bridge of the River Kwai. <laughs> Dead right. Obviously, it had to be. <laughs> what else is there about building the fucking, whatever that railway is called, the Railway of Death? All I know is... It's gonna be a, a it's gonna be a good week for me up in my uh, my movie room here. Uh, it's like five hours away from my family. This is gonna be incredible. <laughs> I don't know anything about the railway man. Um, uh, no, me neither. But I, uh, I heard it's okay. Or it's very so. I think it's about like a guy who was a was a prisoner of war who helped build that railway and then maybe went back and met his captor at some point. And then well. Whatever. Um, we're not going to have to worry about that for this week. 
Next week, we're catching up on a film we missed last week, last year rather, that's supposed to be absolutely excellent. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting along with it. It's actually going to tie back to, I think, the very first episode of this podcast, right? That's right. And the next episode is episode 100. So episode one featured Ruben Ostlund's The Square. And episode 100 is going to be his film Triangle of Sadness. Whose film? Ruben Ostlund. <laughs> Ruben Ostlund. <laughs> I'm never going Elizabeth to give that up. Moose. <laughs> Elizabeth Moose. Terry. Have you had sex with Klaus Bing? Terry, Terry Notari. I'm never giving that up. <laughs> Years later. Sweet. All right. Well, um, I guess that covers it for this week. It does. Triangle of Sadness next week. Coming up. Coming I might rewatch Banshees of Inisherin just so I have an excuse to talk about it again. Uh, yeah, Belen wants to watch it, so I'm de- I'm ac- legitimately definitely going to uh, have rewatched um, Banshees of Inisherin in the meantime. Uh, in the meantime, though, I love you. I love you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.